All right. One of the things I love about that video uh, when we were looking at some different options is the impact that multiple people made on his journey. Um, and I, 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 I find that really encouraging because I think sometimes we forget that, th- that we have a touch on people's lives. We can impact some people's lives, but it's a team effort. Uh, that the touches you're making in someone's life for Christ are just a part of the bigger picture. And so you may not see the result, you may not see the big picture, but you keep living for Christ, you keep encouraging others. And I love what he said there about so many of those guys that impacted him uh, from someone that basically laid out faith black and white. Look, if you say you're a follower of Christ, it looks like this, to someone that said, hey, here's how we love our wives, to here's how we love other men that God has brought into our lives. And it just was really, really cool to hear that. Um, And I I don't hate the fact that he picked the Rams to win. I'm okay with that. But I just thought that was a really cool take. And I love seeing people uh, living out in, if you will, the real world, right? Just living for Christ. But I love what he said there. He said, when you walk with Christ, it's about showing you walk with Christ, not just telling everybody. And I think sometimes we can fall in the habit of just telling everybody we're Christ followers, and we forget that part of it is also to live in a way that follows Christ and honors Christ. And so I hope that was a blessing to you to hear that kind of testimony this morning. As I said before, um, before I forgot what we were doing this morning, um, I do want to get into the Word of God for a little bit this morning. And so Matthew chapter 16, we're going to go over there now. And again, kind of thinking about this idea of family feud and this idea of a survey, popular opinion type question Um, I want to dive into a story where Jesus did the same thing before his disciples, that he kind of asked, what does the survey say about me? What is the, what is the crowds saying about me? And so Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says this, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man am? Jesus was saying, right now. There are so many answers to that question, and there always have been so many answers to that question. Who do men say that Christ is? Even in the early church, it led to a bunch of the church leaders and elders getting together and saying as early as 325 AD, we need to definitively define who Jesus really is. What does the Bible really say about who Jesus is? Because there was questions. Is he really God incarnate? Is he really co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. And after that council was put together, the definitive answer was, yes, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But today, there are many answers to that question. Many, many answers to that question. I want to look at the top four answers from 2,000 years ago. I want to look at the top four answers to that survey question that Jesus asked. Look at Matthew chapter 16 and verse 14. And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so these are the top four answers. The disciples say, hey, when we listen to the crowd, when we listen to the popular opinion, these are the top four answers we're hearing back from the crowd. And those four answers, again, are John the Baptist, which means he would have been reincarnated that his spirit was, or his, his soul was given to Christ, and Christ began to minister because John the Baptist has already been martyred by this point. And, and one of the reasons people think John the Baptist is because Jesus preached repentance. He preached that, that there's a, a righteousness that's the standard that we can't match, and we need to repent and look ahead and prepare for the coming of the Messiah. So many said, well, he's like John the Baptist. He preaches like John the Baptist, very firm, very truthful. Some say Elias or Elijah. Jews thought Elijah was the greatest prophet. 
And when Jesus came, he did miracles like those of Elijah. So maybe he's Elijah come back to us. Some said Jeremiah, which again might strike you as interesting, but Jeremiah, the prophet from the Old Testament, was known as the weeping prophet. He was a man of great compassion and great sorrow for the people of Israel because they refused to repent and trust. And they continued to focus on their own ways. And so it broke Jeremiah's heart. Jesus as well shed tears for the people. If you think about it, when Jesus showed up and he was at the grave of Lazarus, how does he respond? He doesn't rebuke. He doesn't correct. He wept. He looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. He, he had a p- compassion for the people, the nation of Israel. And then there's a phrase there at the end. It says, one of the prophets one of the prophets. And there's some talk about what they could have meant by this. The most popular opinion is that they were referring to an Old Testament prophecy about this prophet that would come, this one that would come. This one prophet is unique in a couple of ways. Some said this was a great prophet of the past restored to life. So Jeremiah or Elijah, one of these great prophets from the past restored to life. Even Moses spoke of this prophet that was to come. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that a prophet would come. And many have said that prophet would be Messiah. This is actually mentioned a couple times in the New Testament as well. John chapter 4, verse 19 is one of the more popular ones where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and she, he begins to reveal to her all these things that, that all the men that she was with were not really her husbands and this man she's with her now is not her husband and, and he was kind of confronting her in a loving and gracious way about her sin and she was responding truthfully to that and she says, I perceive you are a prophet. Many have said that when she said that, it was kind of the precursor to her believing he was the Messiah. You see, this Samaritan woman would reject the Jewish understanding based in Judah and Israel. She would not believe the writings of David and all of that. She would only be looking to the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And so she had an understanding of Messiah from just the first five books of the Old Testament. So when she says, you are a prophet, some have believed she may have been hinting at the fact that she was understanding him to be the Messiah. Also, we see this in John chapter 6 and verse 14. The people began to see after the feeding of the 5,000 that this man may be the prophets prophesied of old. One of the prophets prophesied of old. One commentary, I love what they say here about these four popular opinions. Again, these opinions are not horrible opinions. They don't think bad things of Jesus. They don't think evil things of Jesus. They just think inappropriate things of Jesus and who Jesus really is. So they think, well, you're one of the prophets, but the minute you say Jesus is like one of these men and you omit the reality that he is also the God man, you've lowered down who Jesus really is. If you study church history, one of the amazing things is every time there was a heresy in the early church, a different belief that began to be propagated through the church, it usually or almost always centered on the person of Christ. It was an attempt to take away either the deity of Christ and make him just man or make him all God and no man. And whenever you do either of those, you are robbing him of who he really is and who he says he is. And so the one commentary I want to share with you, just an excerpt from this that I found interesting. The four popular opinions here mentioned show two facts. 
that Jesus had a high reputation among his contemporaries. So again, he's respected. The reality is, though, Jesus doesn't need or want your respect. Jesus demands our submission. You see, Jesus doesn't want you to respect him. That's fine if you revere him. But if all you do is respect him, that's not good enough. Lots of people respect Jesus as a good teacher, a moral leader. But when they stand before him and he is the judge, they are going to hope and wish they did more than just respect him. They're going to pray that they would have received him as Savior. It goes on to say this in this excerpt, that Jesus had a high reputation among his contemporaries and that he was by none at this time regarded as the Messiah and only the Messiah. Even those who, after certain of his marvelous works, had been ready to honor him with that title, soon cooled in their adore and checked by his reserve and the slanders of the Pharisees learn to see him in only a wonder worker or a precursor of the expected prince and liberator. See, they wanted to say, he's the Messiah. And look at these things he's doing. It seems as though, but yet from the crowd, from the Pharisees, from their own doubt and self-doubt or lack of belief in who Christ is, they began to kind of cool their attention and say, well, maybe he's just a miracle worker. Maybe he's just a prophet. Maybe he's just that or just this. So Jesus asked this question, how does he respond to their, to their answer? Right? He says, what is the popular opinion? They give him these four answers. If you, if it was you or I, wouldn't you begin to refute each one of these? Well, I'm not Elijah and I'm not John the Baptist and I'm not, but is that what Jesus does? No, he just moves on. He just continues. He does not take time to refute them or correct them. No, he just moves on because public opinion is just that. An opinion shared by the majority of the public. What he really wants to know is, do you, my disciples that have walked and learned from me, do you believe in the popular or public opinion? Do you believe in the top four? He goes on in verse 15. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? This is such an important moment in this passage. He asks the popular opinion to get him thinking. Who do people say that I am? Well, they say you're this, 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 and this. Who do you say that I am? See, this is Jesus getting personal. Jesus gets personal. He asks a pointed question that reveals their true belief. Now, sometimes when Jesus does this, we like this. As long as he's asking someone else. What is it Vodi Bakum says? If you can't say amen, you at least should say ouch. And we love this. Yeah, Jesus, man, when you're reading the Gospels, get on those Pharisees, Jesus. Oh, man, get on those religious leaders. Yeah, let them have it, Jesus. But then when he turns the attention to us, and he says, okay, great. Who do you say that I am? We don't like that as much. Because we start to realize something. We can say to everyone else who we think Jesus is. But only Jesus knows our heart. And with what we say, does it match what we believe? You can tell everyone, oh, no, I believe Jesus is the Savior. Really? Do you, in your heart of hearts and in your mind, as a follower of Christ, do you believe that's the point of complete surrender and trust? And you can convince all of us, I can convince you, you can convince me that we believe that. But only Jesus knows my heart. And I can tell Jesus, Jesus, you know I don't love you like that some days. 
You know, I want to say you're number one, that you're the savior, but I don't always live that way, Lord. So he asked a pointed question that reveals true belief. He asked all of his disciples this question, including the one that would betray him, Judas Iscariot. Jesus, being God, and again, knowing our hearts, posed a question to us that will strike at the core of our belief. And he actually does this multiple times with the crowds or disciples. Another example of this, if you're taking notes, you can jot it down. And I know I'm moving quickly through the content for time's sake, but if you want a copy of my notes, just reach out to me, let me know. I'd love to give them to you either digitally or just give you the printed copy. But he says this also in John chapter 6 and verse 67. This is following when Jesus said to the crowds that were following him, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Which, ew. But could you imagine a religious leader you're following and you're like, man, this guy's great. He's healing people, feeding people. He's teaching these great deep truths. He's kind of getting on the religious because they're, you know, the religious and we don't like them anyway. They always yell at us and stuff. And this guy's awesome. And he just said, eat his flesh and drink his blood. Well, that was fun. Moving on. And this is what the crowds do. These are, these are Jews. They can't eat bacon. <laughs> they can't eat fl- human. Fl- what? That doesn't make any sense to us. Now we know what was Jesus alluding to. He was alluding to his sacrificial death on the cross. What we celebrate with communion when we take the bread and we drink the cup. We symbolize the burial of Christ, the, the death of Christ, and the shedding of his blood. And that's what Jesus was alluding to. But they were thinking totally physically, and they just were like, that's gross. So they began to turn away, and they began to leave. They actually turn away from Jesus because he said something they didn't like. After that begins to happen, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. Therefore, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? The crowds begin to leave. See, he's not about the public opinion. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. See, in the end, the public, the majority opinion will bow to Christ and honor him as Savior. Either as Savior personally forgiven of sins or as judge. Every knee will bow. So Jesus isn't concerned about swaying public opinion or getting majority opinion. It's amazing to me. Christians in our world, since the beginning, have not been the majority. Now, maybe at times in certain cultures, they've risen up to somewhat more of a predominance. But if you notice, when that starts to happen, the church becomes, begins to be corrupted. Anytime power and money and influence starts to creep into the church, give it no time at all before the church will be corrupted and will get off track and derail. Because Jesus isn't about public, public or popular opinion. He is about individual hearts turning over to him as Savior. And through that, God will change nations. Through that, Jesus will change families. Not through the top down, but from the bottom up in our hearts. So he asked the disciples, do you want to go away too. Are you going to leave like the crowds do? The reality is maybe we can learn something here. And instead of trying to convince the crowd, we merely live our conviction in our testimony for Christ. Instead of getting so worked up when the crowd doesn't want to follow, maybe we just go to work and we talk to our coworker one-on-one and we just lead them to Christ and lead an example before them. Maybe instead of wasting our time trying to convince the popular opinion to change, we just go into people's lives one-on-one and we begin to show them the Christ-like love that we've received and let that begin to change lives. Maybe that's what Jesus was referring to here. So who do they believe Jesus to be? Quickly. Who do they believe Jesus to be? Peter, again, love Peter. I do because he says what all of us think but are too afraid to say. Peter says in Matthew chapter 16, look at verses 16 and 17. He speaks up for the group, which was common. He was kind of the spokesman for the group, whether they wanted him to be or not. 
Verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Always notice something here. When Peter says something he shouldn't say, Jesus starts by calling him Peter. When he says something he's supposed to say, he starts by calling him Simon. See, I think it's Jesus' way of reminding him, Simon, I remember I changed your name, Simon. You're now Simon. You're, I'm going to build upon this testimony, this word of faith that you just gave that who Christ is. But when Peter denies Christ later, he says, and when he's challenging him, he calls him Peter. He's reminding him of who he was in the flesh and who he can be in Christ. Here we see Peter's answer is stating that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Christ. In the original language, this is in what's known as the definite article. There's no doubt, no wavering, no question. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Christ affirms his answer. This means he possessed deity as the son of God, as the son of the living God. Peter also spoke up in the example from John chapter 6 that I referenced. And he said, Lord, when he said, are you guys going to leave too? Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. You see Peter speaking up on behalf of the group. But notice what happens here. When Peter speaks up in Matthew 16, do we see the disciples argue with him? Do we see the rest of the guys go, whoa, 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 whoa. Speak for yourself. So what we can conclude from that is that the disciples as a whole... We know Judas ends up betraying Christ, but at least on the surface, the disciples as a whole agree with Peter's statement that he is the Christ. So we can again infer that all the disciples seemingly agreed. However, we know the rest of the story. Not every one of those disciples followed Christ wholeheartedly right away. Basically, their practice did not match their profession. And yet there was grace to sustain them. Can I tell you that's an encouragement for me today? That they definitively said, you are the Christ. We believe it. And I really did believe it. But yet in their practical lives, they didn't quite live it out fully. And that's an encouragement because Christ gives them grace to sustain them, to walk with them, to minister to them. And we find we get into the book of Acts and they are used by God to do amazing things. So my question to all of us today is, and you can answer this between you and the Lord, but what's your answer? Not what do they think? What does your parents think? What do your neighbors think? What do our politicians think? What do our leaders think? What, do our, what does our world think, our culture think? What does, no, no, no. I'm not talking about them right now. See, we also like to do that. We love to talk about all those bad people out there. Those ones, if they would just get it all figured out, then we'd be great. Man, it's so much easier to blame someone else, isn't it? Well, yeah, but it's not me. It's them. It's just all them. If they would just, no, no, no. Stop worrying about them for two seconds and say, Lord, what's my answer to this question? Not what am I supposed to say the answer is. Not what have I been taught the answer is. Not what do I think they want to hear. But what is the real answer? Who is Jesus? And how would you answer that? In our world today, we have to answer this question as well. And like the disciples, we have a few popular opinions to choose from. He was a good teacher, a moral man, a prophet. But Jesus wants to get beyond that and get personal. We can say in church that, of course, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But is that a true reflection of our hearts? 
Do you truly believe that Christ was and is who he says he was and is as the risen Savior of the world, the Son of God, the only sinless Lamb who was sacrificed for your sins and my sins, whose death, burial, and resurrections pardons us, and now we live for him, and we surrender all to him. So maybe you would answer, no, I affirm, I believe he is the Christ. Well, then does your practice match your profession? What you're professing with your mouth, does it match your practice? And if it doesn't, take heart. You're in great company. We've all struggled. We've all made decisions that didn't match what we said we believed. And we don't beat ourselves up or tear ourselves down. We remind ourselves of the grace that is available for repentance and restoration. We can learn from how Christ responded to the popular answer by not focusing on changing their opinions, but rather encouraging his disciples, us, to live out our own convictions of who Christ is. So do we, as Peter proclaimed, believe Jesus is truly the Christ, God himself, our Savior? And if we do believe that, are we allowing him to transform us? I'm going to ask that you would pray right there where you are. And we're going to have just a short time of invitation. I want to ask you right there where you are, don't, don't be distracted by anything else. Don't worry about anyone else. Don't, don't think about anyone else right now. It's about you and the Lord. And we're going to have a time of invitation. Here's what I want you to do. Two things, two simple things. One, just as you begin to pray right there where you are, bow your heads right there. The first thing is, do you know Christ as your Savior? If you were to ask, be asked that question today and you had to give an answer, who is Jesus to you? Would your answer be a good teacher, a moral man? prophet or would it be he's my savior he's the one that died for my sins he's the one that gave all for me and I surrender my life to him he's my all in all Uh, would your answer be something along those lines or would it be something simpler like he's just a good man who did good things only you know the answer to that question between you and God in your hearts and so if you don't know Christ as your savior maybe this morning You'd cry out to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins. You'd surrender your life to him and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for payment for your sins. The second thing would be this. If you're here and you know Christ is your Savior, but you would honestly admit between you and God that your practice, your lifestyle doesn't match what you say you believe, then maybe you would come forward in just a moment and bend a knee and say, God, I'm sorry for the ways that I've lived that if not reflected my belief in you. I want to show through my actions and through my words and how I speak to my coworkers and how I speak about and to my spouse. Lord, as we heard in that video, that we have to remember that those things reflect our testimony as well of who we say you are. So maybe somebody would come this morning and bend a knee and say, forgive me, Lord, where I failed you in these areas. But may we come remembering that there is grace that we can repent and turn back to him and to find grace and restoration and healing. We don't have to live in shame and guilt. In fact, those are things that God would not want us to live in. We can just surrender and be thankful for grace and forgiveness. Father, in all these things, may you lead, guide, and direct. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we tie up the time of invitation? Would you come and pray? Maybe bend a knee right here in the front, just by yourself with husband and wife, as a family, whatever God is doing, would you just come and say, Lord, if I don't know you, I want to know you today.
Lord, help my life to reflect the reality of my belief. Would you come and respond this morning?